Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So you're a manager, right? I yes, I am. Are you ever a micromanager? <laughs> I try not to be, but you could maybe ask some of the people who work for me, and they might tell you otherwise. I guess. Hopefully not. The, <laughs> I guess the question that I'm I'm wondering is, do you ever micromanage your models? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Not yeah. your people, but your models. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about that. That sounds great. Yeah. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So by micromanage your models, I'm going to connect a few dots here and you tell me if I'm uh-huh. on the right track. Okay. So I have a little bit of the benefit of the, the chat that we were having before we started recording here. What chat? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think maybe what you meant. We just materialized at the beginning of the episode. Was this philosophical discussion that's happening in the in the highest ivory towers of machine learning right now. No, I'm I'm kind of being serious. So the question is, we have these types of problems that humans have been solving for as long as we've been paying attention to this kind of stuff, Uh, things like vision and speech. And now we have AI agents usually in the form of deep neural nets that are starting to approach human-like performance on certain types of tasks like this. And so the question is, are those models better when we try to explicitly incorporate information that we that we know about, say, how human cognition works, how vision works, the different types of structure that we're sort of implicitly taking into account when we look at things, likewise for, for speech? Or should we instead be thinking of deep learning models as make them as general as possible, you know, don't try to impose any structure on them, let them figure it all out themselves. And then that's the best way of building these algorithms. Where best here is, well, that's a little bit subjective, but we can get to that. Yeah. 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 So I guess when I was thinking of it uh, with respect to management, if you have an employee and you're asking the employee to do something and you know how you would do it, then the question is, do you tell the employee, hey, do it this way, do it my way? Or do you tell the employee, hey, here's a problem, can you solve this? Uh, and I think with with humans, pretty much the answer is almost always give them a challenge and let them rise to it, rather than giving them the way that you would do it. And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. One is you want to see if they come up with better solutions than you maybe came up with. But the other big one is motivation. If you're micromanaging another person, that person is not going to be very inspired or excited to come to work. They'll probably want to quit and they'll probably resent you. But uh, so far as we know, our uh, ML models do not resent us and don't you know so we don't have to work work on that element but of if it. they ever do we will be in real trouble <laughs> yeah that's that's true but but yeah i guess it's a good question yeah well so and there's a couple of there's a couple of different arguments that you could make that are valid so let me lay out a few of the cases that i see so one is let's take the example of some pretty impressive advances recently in some of this d- deep reinforcement learning stuff. So the algorithms that won uh, StarCraft or Go, one of the things that seems to generally be true of those algorithms, this is this is a perfect example of 
a cutting edge case where the algorithmic performance has unambiguously exceeded the performance of the best human. So this is a an algorithm that is better than humans at the thing that it was asked to do. So we'll hold this up as an example of like a quote unquote good algorithm, an algorithm that's good at what it's supposed to be good at. And in those cases, they didn't start by programming in the rules of Go or the rules of StarCraft. And they certainly didn't start out by programming in explicitly uh, strategies about, okay, so here's what you would do in this type of situation. Here's what you would do in that type of situation. Instead, what they did was they had the algorithm watch lots and lots of games and then start to play in the games themselves. And then when they would make mistakes, then they would get beaten. And then that would be incorporated into their reward function. They would learn not to do that. They would try something else next time. If it worked, they would keep doing that. And so they would kind of iteratively build up this understanding of both how the world works and how to function in the world so that they got what they quote unquote wanted. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, both the rules and the strategy are kind of building up alongside each other. Now, if you're trying to do something that's maybe a little bit more ambiguous, a little bit more challenging, like natural language generation, well, that's, that's maybe, that's arguably a little bit more complicated. So in the case of natural language, what they, what certain people tried to do for a long, long time, this was like Noam Chomsky's thing and all of these, um, Mm. you know, neuro linguists and this kind of thing. They say, this is how your brain seems to be processing language or put another way. These are the patterns that we seem to always find in language, like patterns like subject, verb, object is a grammatical structure that makes sense to us. If you have a preposition, then that's usually followed by a noun, and we call it the object of the preposition. That noun doesn't have to be a single word, but instead it can be an adjective that and a noun that get coupled together, which is a mm. noun phrase. And so you can have this like recursive structure. And so it's like making a rule set. Yes, yes. And so the question is, that rule set is actually arguably like really valuable, really helpful. It it's not always, you know, it doesn't always make for patterns that are 100% predictable. In fact, there's so many corner cases in any language about how to communicate in the language that the rule set actually, you know, in some ways it can inhibit more than it enables. But I mean, that's sort of getting ahead of myself a little bit here. But the idea is that is there something about that rule set that we can teach to the algorithm to help it get started a little bit more quickly? Or put another way, is there something in the algorithm itself that we want to encode so that it has that, it has the ability to pick up, say, that recursive structure. And that's why recurrent neural nets are sort of the state of the art for natural language processing, arguably, or that's that's part of why, is because they do have that ability to spin out recursive language trees in a way that's, you know, arguably reflects the underlying task. Similarly with the convolutional neural nets and vision recognition, that there's this idea of the convolutional layer that you put in the middle of your of your neural net architecture that's implicitly or explicitly even trying to solve the problem of translational invariance. So moving the object around in the field of view, you should still be able to recognize it. So a convolution is explicitly designed to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, 
you know, how do we feel about that? Are we like, oh, yes, recurrent neural nets, that makes sense because the structure of the algorithm is reflecting something about what we know about the problem. Convolutional neural nets, we've made an adaptation of the algorithm itself to reflect some of the challenges in the problem we're trying to solve. Is that, are those a, a necessary good or a necessary evil? Do we love them? Do we hate them? Do we hate to love them? Do we love to hate them? So it's kind of an interesting question. I imagine this isn't a always do this or always do that, like uh, always embrace them or always eschew them kind of situation, though. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question for a couple reasons. Number one is because people, very, very smart people, disagree on this. So part of the reason I was thinking about this this weekend was I was watching a a discussion that was held at Stanford between Jan LeCun and Christopher Manning. So Jan LeCun is, he was at Facebook and, or is at Facebook and NYU. He invented the convolutional neural net. And so he's of the opinion that the fewer constraints we can put on an algorithm and then just feed it with more and more data, that's the best way to, to learn. Christopher Manning, on the other hand, is a linguist who came into machine learning. And so he has a much more, he's much more open to the idea, I think, much more receptive to the idea of there being structure in the algorithms. And so listening to these two people who are both very smart, very accomplished, discuss this and debate it a little bit, it makes clear that, you know, if these two people don't agree on the answer, then Hmm. there's probably no cut and dried answer. Now, I think one of the things that I said earlier that's also interesting and relevant here is it's a little bit like, what's your definition of good? What are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And I think what I meant by that when I said it was, are we talking about, is good defined by the algorithm that does the best with infinite amounts of compute and infinite amounts of data? Because in that case, people seem to generally agree that infinite compute and infinite data is, well, there's basically mathematical guarantees that certain algorithms can learn literally anything. So in theory, that should be the best in, right. in asymptopia, <laughs> right? In a world that yeah. maybe, you know, we, we never get to, or we only get to in very specific circumstances. Or is the question, can we get something that's pretty good much more quickly, in which case, giving the algorithm a little bit of a head start in the form of structure and priors and this kind of thing. There's a lot more going for that argument. Yeah. Although I I guess maybe a counter to that is although that may yield results more quickly, it also limits the field of exploration. Yeah. And so that's a really interesting question. At some point, the unstructured learner will surpass the structured one. Like most people seem to generally agree that's probably theoretically true. But the question is, where is that crossover point? Is it tomorrow? And so we should just start out with the unstructured learner because we'll just wait a day, we'll let it train overnight, and then it'll be better than the thing we could build? Or is it a thousand years and a thousand petabytes of data in the future and we'll never get there anyway? And this isn't, this isn't a question that is even very well defined, and certainly no one knows the answer to it, but it does help a way that you can start to grapple with those two things. So I'm thinking about the, um, I guess I've been thinking this whole time about that management example I gave at the beginning where 
uh, you know, you're talking about, do you have infinite time? And any manager would say, no, I don't have infinite time for my employee to do something. Um, but one thing that humans can generally do pretty well is see a problem and then do at least a mediocre job immediately, even if they've never seen the problem before, because they have a whole bunch of life experiences to extrapolate from and everything. Is that something that machine learning algorithms can also do? Well, that's a, that's a great question. It's an area of really active research, usually called zero-shot learning. So can an algorithm identify something properly the first time it sees it? And you're right. That's something that humans are pretty good at, but neural nets are not particularly yet. A lot of people are working on this. But that is one example where structure certainly helps. And so again, if that's something that's really important to you, getting the first one right, then you might fall a little bit more on the Christopher Manning side of the debate. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the last thing that keeps coming up when I'm thinking about the management and the employee is the motivation part. But clearly, there's not really an analog there. Well, but I think that's really interesting because so this was one of the more interesting things I was thinking about in this context. So in this debate, they were both Lacoon and Manning were talking a lot about, comparatively a lot about unsupervised learning and how that's actually how a lot of humans learn a lot is we don't walk around looking at things that have labels attached to them, right? We're just looking around and noticing patterns (laughs) and structure and we start to like put this all together on our own. And then there's like small amounts of structured data or where we get explicit feedback that helps us then figure out what the answers are for whole classes of things because we can generalize across all of our experience. So the point is that there's, there's this, this thing that we're doing when we're learning, when we're walking through the world, that's really similar to unstructured learning in a lot or unsupervised learning in a lot of ways. And it's not clear to us, you know, as you're a baby, let's say, and you're walking around and you're just learning new things, or maybe you're in a new country for the first time and you're figuring out like the customs and the habits and the patterns it's not necessarily that you're walking around and explicitly trying to solve a specific problem, right? You're just mm-hmm. trying to soak it all in and figure out what the underlying what the underlying patterns are. And part of the reward in a sense that you're getting from that is if you want to think about it this way, being able to predict what's going to happen next, even if you're not making explicit decisions on that. It's like you're you're standing there at a corner and you're looking at a light and you see the light change color and you're like, oh, I bet everybody's going to start walking. And then when they all start walking, you're like, oh, cool. I figured a thing out. And and that's like a that's little reward that you get, even though there is not isn't... what happens in New York, though. <laughs> OK, well, that that's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm messing with your metaphors. Anyway, the place where I'm trying to get is that yeah. there's this really interesting idea also of you know when we're training machine learning algorithms the the rewards that we give to them are just making a right decision one way or another and that's usually cuz we have this very well developed supervised machine learning approach and unsupervised learning is comparatively less developed but think about it for a second if you had an unsupervised algorithm that was just motivated to understand what it was looking at to come up with categories that it found to be representative of the categories that it was like, quote unquote, seeing out in the world. Hmm. So you're rewarding an unsupervised algorithm with just a reward function about learning the structure of the environment that it's in. 
and like then order from chaos a little bit yeah so you're rewarding the algorithm in a sense for learning its own structure and then layering a little bit on top that might be about the specific problem that you wanted to solve and so anyway i thought huh. that was a really interesting perspective on number one what is motivation that maybe you know if we're quote unquote motivating algorithms with just getting the right answer then that leads them to be kind of brittle and overtrained in some circumstances whereas asking them to learn more comprehensively and especially using unsupervised methods to to think about that problem is just i think that's a really interesting analogy or metaphor and maybe also practical way of thinking about how to reconcile these two views of the world that's fascinating it it seems like we regularly are trying to make models more like us in a lot of ways not not always but i'm thinking about neural nets or i'm thinking about um like what you were just talking about it seems like we're we're finding the things that tend to work really well in humans and we're finding ways to apply those i guess evolutionary evolutionary predispositions and learnings to machine learning algorithms it's kind of crazy yeah, which you know takes us back to the original question in a really interesting way. Should we be modeling things based on how we've done them in the past or leave things completely open to to let namely like using modeling it after how humans have learned things or should we let open the doors to algorithms learning things in completely new ways. But anyway, maybe I'm getting a little bit too meta here. I think it's a really <laughs> it's a really really good discussion that prompted me to be thinking about all this. So I will put a link to the the video. And then there's a very good summary write-up by the the graduate student who was moderating the event and who's one of the, the graduate students uh, of one of the folks talking there. So I will put a link to her, the blog post where she wrote about it. And when you have an hour and you want to just listen to some very smart, articulate people talk about really interesting things, I would highly recommend it. That sounds like a nice weekend. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.